maintain your integrity. You, know, you need to establish, really establish your goals and your principles, your operating procedures and principles as you become involved and, uh, and you don't veer from them you know, without good reason. Of course, there are always flexibilities required and where, where you're flexible and where you're not, that's of course an, another question. But it's, uh, it's imperative to always be as open and as honest as possible and you'll be respected for it. That's Chris Burke speaking about some general tips for effective communication. Chris has an incredibly diverse background and is a communications expert with extensive experience in conflict situations. Chris is an Australian and after a broad range of international projects settled in Kampala, Uganda, where he's made his home for over 20 years and is a sought after on the ground professional to execute and consult on major projects for organizations including CARE, USAID, the World Food Program, the WWF, UNICEF, and the Carter Center, to name a few. He played an instrumental role in the implementation of the Nairobi Peace Agreement. He sought after for his experience with land-related conflicts, including land tenure and socially responsible and compliant agroforestry practices. He spearheaded many sensitization campaigns, was involved in UN peacekeeping operations in South Sudan. He even initiated and directed the undertaking of establishing the first commercial FM radio station in Juba. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, and in this episode, we'll be talking about the role of communication in political conflict. We talk about the role of culture, the impact of communication technologies on violent conflict, the role of trust in communication, tactics to address infodemics, sensitization campaigns, general tips for foreign aid workers, and much more. This is Conflict, Power and Persuasion, podcast of the Canadian International Institute of Applied Negotiation. Hi, Chris. Thanks a lot for coming on. Good to catch up again after after so long. Thank you. The pleasure is mine. So I've done my best at a brief summary of your professional experience. Uh, you've got an incredible range of expertise. Are you able to give just a quick uh, snapshot of your, your interests and uh, career to date? Well, uh, as you said, I've had a, I've had a very diverse career. Uh, maybe if I summarise it in terms of just the geography, for the first ten years of my my career, um, I was based in uh, primarily, primarily um, Japan, Korea, and uh, China. I uh, was focused. I actually did a master's degree at Yonsei University in South Korea, and I worked at a research institute looking at. Um, state-state relations. The, the focus of my research at that time or the focus of my studies and my work um, was uh, Chinese security relations. So I spent a lot of time in, in Southeast Asia, um, as I said, focused on state-state conflict and then refocused to, to Southeast Asia. I did a brief stint in East Timor um, before moving to Africa, um, where I've been for the last 20 years. And there I started primarily in the mediation, conflict mediation uh, support around the, the Nairobi um, peace agreement. And it was from there that I worked, moved more broadly into communications and, and advocacy. I uh, established the first commercial FM radio station in, in South Sudan, in Juba, um, around 2004, 2005, with a couple of partners. Um, I did a lot of work on uh, China. China's engagement in South, in uh, across Africa, they've moved really into uh, the development sector, uh, squarely looking at uh, 
and a range of different issues. Um, that's where I got involved in land primarily, land governance, and, and then land communications um, for around 10 years. Before, um, more recently, around three, four years ago, broadening into to communications, uh, where I've worked for WMC Africa is a communications and, and PR agency, really focused continentally on a range of uh, communications um, and public relations marketing issues across, uh, across Africa. Um, and one of the key areas has been around social marketing or development communications and uh, communications in crisis and, and conflict situations uh, among those. So I want to dive right in here and start with the topic of culture. Uh, you have extensive experience working across many different cultures, not only in the context of conflict and peace building, but in terms of negotiations across a, a wide range of projects. I mean, there's several theories about how culture, cultural differences can affect negotiations. Uh, you know, the, the common one is the individualism versus collectivism, uh, you know, whether culture organizes around the individual or the group. Uh, there's stuff about time sensitivity. Um, can you talk about uh, cultural differences in communication styles? Are there any noticeable differences? Uh, and if so, are they significant enough that they could actually impact uh, negotiations um, and so on? So, well, of course, cultural differences are, are important. And, uh, and these are, are, are closely tied to, to environment. Uh, different environments and, uh, and the different the different types of conflicts that uh, that that we can come across, but fundamentally, um, as human beings, we receive, analyze, and, and respond to conflict um, primarily in the same way. Or well, as a mediator, yes, you you need to be aware of of the the cultural context. Um, but a lot is excused because people will be very focused on, on finding resolution um, to their problems. But also you need to remember that uh, these, these different groups, um, whether it's rebels or governments, are, are usually operating in the same region. So while they might be of a diff different cultural orientation, they've usually got a long, long history of, of interaction and engagement. And they'll, they'll have each other worked out and they'll know each other's strengths and weaknesses. Uh -huh. um, and, and, and they'll ultimately be able to, to communicate um, and, and push forward for peace if um, they see a benefit in that. So you've been the point of contact to communicate with a number of violent groups and individuals, including rebel leaders, um, to arrange for peace talks. And there's certainly going to be a large amount of suspicion and distrust about your intentions. Uh, do you have any insights on communication methods to increase trust? Or in the flip side of that, is there anything that clearly decreases trust? So how, how are you preparing for those discussions? Honesty, as simple as that. You know, credibility, of course. Credibility and the power um, or capacity to convene, mm -hmm. to convene, to bring different stakeholders um, the protagonists and but different stakeholders together, and having the capacity to to represent them in some sort of way in a, in in the different different aspects of the mediation process. Okay, so honesty, uh, number one, but uh, things like your uh, 
capacity, your your ability to convene can also contribute to um, your perceived trust trustworthiness. Um, have you ever been in a situation where you've sensed uh, a large amount of distrust about your your intentions? And um, w- what could you do in that situation? Um, no, I haven't. Really, I don't believe so. It was, a, of course, there was already always a. I've been in in many environments where there was a, a an institutional level of distrust. Let me say, but a, a personal level or a level that might uh, might have any impact on me personally, no. But I've always uh, I, I I've always been very conscious of this as an issue, and uh, that's how I've selected the areas that I work in. Mm-hmm. There's no way I would ever have gone to a conflict in Afghanistan or the Middle East. And it's because where my people were part of it, and I say like this Western Anglo-Saxon, you know, the Americans, the Brits, the Australians were in there doing something we shouldn't have been. It was usually greed or oil. I guess I, you know, East Timor, there was a big part of it. Yeah, what Australia did in East Timor was just shocking. Mm-hmm. And it was all... It was Australia's interest and, and America's interests. I don't know if you know much about that part of the world, the, the politics there, but it was just, you know, there was worse, worse, as bad as anybody's done anywhere else to like a small neighbouring state in terms of pulling people around and, and ignoring ugly things that go on. Do you see what I'm getting at? If you're going into a place where Canada is somehow involved, then, um, you know, be wary of that and be yes. conscious of it. So, you know, and you would be conscious of it, but I think that also put it's a, in terms of mediation, I think it's a conflict. Of course, it's a conflict of interests of sorts and it, and it puts, it puts a mediator at some, some level of risk. So in a sense though, you want to avoid situations where there, there's sort of this inherent distrust or potential for distrust. Um, so not, uh, not through you personally, but through your, your allegiance or background or whatnot. Yeah, at least, yeah. It, but then it depends on what, you know, you could, if you're a junior clerk on a team that's doing that, maybe that's a great experience or, but you just have to be mindful. Certainly the way I operated and I guess operators, I really, I go out into the field. I really expose myself. So I'm very mindful with what I've said or pushed around that it doesn't come bite me in the ass in an inopportune moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you understand what I mean. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed any common communication tactics that are relied on when there are fairly significant uh, power differentials uh, between the parties? So, for example, the you know the states and rebel groups. I mean, there's clearly going to be uh, different access to public communication channels. Um, do you see the reliance on propaganda, or there are there any trends you see here with uh, power differentials in communication? Yes, of course. And, and you touched on it. Rebels and dissidents or, or disenfranchised groups have traditionally had less access to, to different forms of media. But uh, this, of course, has been changing constantly over the last century and, and, and well before. Mobile phones, remember, just only started 20 years ago. So this uh, before that, um, we were looking at satellite phones and fax machines. Now I can send all of this from the palm of my hand and uh, communications have had a fundamental impact. And digital media, of course, has really started to level the playing field. Of course, there's great areas that are not 
don't have access. Some areas are great, are more accessible than others. Certainly many conflict areas, large areas uh, don't have access to, to telecommunications. Conflict or post-conflict situations, environments, um, generally uh, have uh, less access to, to telecommunications um, than others. But FM radio, of course, is still the, the sharpest tool in the development box um, mm. for reaching out. But as, but as I said, digital media. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a real game changer. And while in parts of uh, Uganda, um, it's only 30, 40% of uh, people in rural is, uh, urban areas. I think 40% of people in urban areas have access to, to internet and it's significant less in, it's, I think, around 15% in, uh, in rural areas that have access to, to, to internet. But this is changing at a dramatic rate. Mm. And in, in another 10 years, telecommunications, let me say internet, will be, uh, will be accessible and this will level things out. Right. Enhanced communication abilities will be such a, a powerful tool, leveling things out, as you say. I'd assume rebel groups could become perhaps more organized to coordinate internal operations. They might be better able to uh, gather sympathizers for the cause. Um, I'm sure there's numerous advantages. Have you seen any evidence of this already? Has increased communication abilities changed the dynamics of these violent conflicts? Yes, the, the impact has been has been very very significant, and 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 is, is and can be noticed um, across the board. Most recently, you can see the what's happened in Afghanistan. The way that the Taliban have been using communications is very different to uh, to twenty years ago in Africa. Uh, it's very much the same thing. And I, I don't think it's the rebel groups necessarily becoming more organised and, and, and strengthening their capacity to coordinate internal communications, but rather the fact that communications have just been so simple, have become so simple and so accessible um, that uh, people right throughout the rank and file can, can use them and can have access to them and to, and to put the word out uh, to, to communicate with the world um, what the issues are. In the past, it was only the uh, governments or states that, uh, that had access very often to communications, um, and they would be able to tell the story as, as they wanted. But now with uh, increased communication, certainly uh, communications coming from the rebel side, the governments, the governments have to, to, to rethink the way they manage their communications. There's obviously less room for propaganda. Propaganda has not been completely uh, knocked out um, by any means. As we see in social media, it's, it takes on a life of its own. Rebel groups also have access to, to these tools and are able to use communications, social media, mass communications tools um, to their own ends. Hmm. You mentioned uh, FM radio, and I know you were involved in uh, setting up a, a station in Juba. Do you want to speak to that for a bit? Was what was the motivation there? Okay, um, at a at a personal level, I, I wanted to to spend more time in the region, and I was I was very interested, um, in fact, fascinated uh, by the different things that were happening in South Sudan at, at, at that time, and uh, I thought communications, um, improving communications, would be um, would would be a significant contribution to the to the situation. And there was no FM radio station 
in Juba. Is, is that fairly common then uh, across a lot of regions or was it abnormal for Juba or? Okay, FM radio stations, the, the biggest challenge they face is that they, they only reach um, 20 to 30 kilometers beyond line of sight. Ah. So and an FM radio station, you need power, of course. You need certain uh, certain level of uh, infrastructure generally. So it's FM radio stations are restricted to towns. As I said, 30, 40 kilometers beyond line of sight, but over hilly terrain, it would be significantly less. So there's lots of variables, but large areas, r- large parts of uh, rural Africa um, don't have access to, uh, to FM radio. That's probably a good segue into um, infodemics. You, you recently wrote a paper on infodemics, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was in the context of communication management in response to humanitarian crisis. Um, yes. Yeah. Can you explain what um, infodemics is, uh, why it's important, and then I, I guess, you know, what might be done to address it? Infodemics is the, the complete over, overload of uh, information and, and data. Mm-hmm. And uh, now, we, as we were talking already about digital information or digital media, um, the amount of information and data that, uh, that, we, that we have access to at any one time is, is, is far greater than anything we've had before. So th- this, of course, will become easier to, to manage. Um, we're already seeing early development in AI um, mm. around, around management of, of, of a lot of this data. But, but human agency or the, our capacity to adapt and make the best of our environment has always depended on our capacity to identify issues um, taking information, make the best decisions on those. Now, th- this was in um, communication management response to a humanitarian crisis. Um, is is that a special case? I guess, and, and is there what what additional considerations would there be in that sort of situation? So, this is a humanitarian crisis. Of course, is written large. So, this is everything from a natural disaster, mm-hmm. bushfires in Canada. Recently, many people would be able to identify with, Mm -hmm. Um, and and to to, to take an example home, but but to um, floods, and of course conflict or wars. So, what's the the general idea then? Is during these times there's going to be an influx in information, and there's the challenge of managing. I guess for, for another example, I guess you could use COVID and a lot of the misinformation that was um, spread around that. We even had, um, you know, I think Facebook started censoring uh, information that was going around. Um, it, it, is that the general idea the of infodemics? So infodemics is just the, uh, the enormous amount of information. It's a, an epidemic of, of, of information, um, yes. an infodemic. So it's making sense of everything that you have. And, and, and the, the, the piece that you referred to um, that I wrote on was for um, managers, um, different institutions, um, emergency relief development organizations um, or relief organizations, emergency relief organizations that might find themselves in, in, a, in an emergency, whether it's an, a natural disaster or a, a conflict zone. And it's just how to manage that information, how for them, 
on a daily basis how do they how do they sift through everything that's coming through and how do you make decisions based on that right so it doesn't necessarily discriminate between misinformation and uh, g- good information um it, it's it's simply uh, a large amount of information and how to yes of course and some of it's good and and, yes. and, and some of it's bad and that's 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 the that's the uh, the key is how to how to uh, to deal um, or how to sift through that quickly because of course um, you have resource constraints. The resources at your disposal are quite finite, you know, and they'll always be pressed. And you're trying to make best use of them. So how do you make best use of 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 all of the information that's coming in? Which how do you sift through and identify what's useful, what's credible, what's not? Yeah, and I guess it's not only important for the team that's responding um, to the event, but uh, it's probably more applicable to the um, to to the public uh, perceptions of the event. Is, is is that correct? Yeah, that that's part of it, of course. But it's um, if you're managing, let me say, uh, humanitarian relief, you're if you're operating an ambulance in a in a situation like that. And uh, in a civil conflict, where do you know is safe? Or where is it safe to go? What's the local knowledge about you and, and the local knowledge and thinking about you and your organization before you dispatch an ambulance to a, to a particular area? You know, will your people be safe? So there's those sort of daily conversations, daily issues. But then there's also um, how do you present yourself in that? And how do you build the credibility of that institution or, or of your organization? Um, so that these people can continue to do their work with support, ideally by by all of the stakeholders and people there. Yeah. So so there's lots of different parts of this. You know, it's infodemics as the inflow of information. What do you do? How you manage that information? How you respond to that information? These are uh, these are all other issues. Yeah, it's quite an undertaking, and it's going to vary depending on the complexity of that situation. And even during relatively less complex mediations, like a a two-party single-issue dispute, a mediator should be constantly mindful of managing the information that's presented, even from setting the agenda, um, taking into consideration the order that the information is presented, to actively sifting through the information in real time, you know, keeping the discussions relevant on track. And that in itself can be challenging, yet in a peace process or an agency responding to a humanitarian crisis, this can be a daunting yet absolutely critical undertaking. Uh, and I, I know this is a big topic, but can you provide any general suggestions uh, on how to approach this? Of course, it, uh, it, it, it depends on an almost infinite number of variables, um, and each case will be very, very different. I think that in this sense, the main constraint is uh, capacity and, and the resources at your disposal. And a rough rule of thumb that I've always found useful um, on the ground for that is to, is to cross-reference incoming information from at least three independent sources. Obviously, uh, this can be very subjective and there's need for, for critical judgment in, in identifying what an independent source is. But remember, you're getting information from a very wide range of, uh, of different sources, from your staff to, uh, to media, international media, local media, the, the protagonists themselves. Three should be the, the, bare, 
the bare minimum. Right. Three independent. It depends resources. on the. It, yeah, it depends on the point that uh, under some issues will be a lot more important than others, and some you might want considerably more than three independent right. sources. But um, but uh, that that should be a bare minimum. The rule of three. That's that's a great tip. Let's shift gears now, and we've we've talked about some of the challenges and dangers of increased communication channels and greater access to communication technologies. Um, you, you've run a number of sensitization campaigns. Can you briefly describe how communication channels can be used for sensitization? So how do we leverage them to create a, a positive impact? Awareness is sensitizing stakeholders and uh, general public um, to particular issues. And uh, uh, once, once people have an understanding or a better understanding of, of, of a situation, the response or the answer is usually very obvious. And uh, obviously different, different sides will respond differently, but I think this is, the, this is where the, the task is for the mediator to, to, to clearly identify and help the different stakeholders identify the, the differences between their, their needs and interests um, as, they, as they work towards a peaceful um, solution to the conflict. Mm. Just so people understand what we're talking about here, do you have a couple examples of a sensitization campaign, whether it was successful or not, but just a, an example? A good, a, a good example that I, that I often refer to was a, a program I was involved in uh, implementing um, with UN Food and Agricultural Organization. And this was, uh, this involved the registration of uh, customary land um, rights or the recording and registration of of customary land rights in a part of Western Uganda that had been subject to a a long running dispute, um, primarily between um, central government and uh, traditional leaders. It was highly politicised. Community was fractured on, on a number of different issues um, at multiple levels. It was a very tense time to be going in and talking to people about land. But everybody was suffering from land problem. The land problem across the region, people were simply not able to, to buy and sell land and very few people felt secure about their land. So. The key to this was communication and making everybody very aware of, uh, of what we were doing, that we were there registering people's plots, that everybody had access to this information, that it was a very transparent process, that there was no room to politicise. In the past, activities of this nature had been heavily politicised. Politicians would come in, different politicians could, would, would step in, and, and, and make allegations for or against central government. Um, and this would, this would um, whip up high levels of hysteria, either way, as I said, for or against government, but with, with clear um, messaging and communications with a high level of awareness of the, of, the, of the work being done, it removed opportunities or vacuums that uh, spoilers could exploit um, to retell the story in their particular way. That, that's great. Thanks. So we're sensitizing the public to an issue, a, a project or whatever it might be, by creating awareness. And 
in this case, leaving no room for spoilers to muddy muddy up the process. Could you just talk a bit more about the idea of spoilers moving into informational vacuums? Okay, well, a vacuum is is, is self-explanatory. It's obviously where where there is a vacuum in information, um, people simply don't know what's happening, and uh, and there will almost always be spoilers. And the spoilers can come at very different levels and many different levels. Um, some can be just looking for for short-term media gain or benefit um, from a situation. Right. Um, they're relatively often relatively minor um, and innocuous. Um, and then there can be the more sinister, um, conscious, or planned initiatives um, to, to scuttle to scuttle a peace agreement. Um, and these ones, of course, uh, uh, all need to be to be dealt with accordingly. But it, as I said, usually it comes and comes from uh, misinformation or a vacuum in information. So if everybody's aware of what the situation is. Um, what the challenges are, what the positions of the different actors are, it's usually it's usually very obvious um, what needs to be done or the the best course of action, um, the best way forward. Right. So, as I said, it's just about keeping keeping everybody informed um, and and keeping keeping the process transparent. Mm. Any tips to share on implementing these campaigns? I think the general advice for running campaigns is uh, is very uh, communication and awareness campaigns is very much the same. Um, whether you're you're pushing for peace or you're or, or you're selling um, Jello, um, you need to have a, a clear objective. Uh, you need to properly assess uh, the target audience audiences. Um, you need to to develop and present the message in a, in an engaging way. Um, that makes sense and, 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 and impacts on the, on the intended audience. Um, and you need to develop and, or identify the most effective way or means to, to convey the message um, and develop a workable strategy. Um, so these are the same things across the board. There are many reasons might, why you might want to run a communication campaign, of course, but it needs to be grounded and effective. You need to have an understanding of what's going on. Of course, you need to listen to all the information um, and look at all, examine all of the information that's coming in. And in this day and age, that can be a lot of information. So we're back to operating within a climate of infodemics. Um, we have the need to understand what's going on, yet there's an incredible amount of information to sift through. What's the balance point here? If you need to conduct your business, whether a campaign, peace process, whatever it might be, what considerations should be given to the amount and type of information that's informing your understanding of the situation? Okay. I, this, this is a this is a, a very interesting point, and and there's a there's a lot of uh, debate and discussion within um, peace building around this. How much information do you really un, do you need to know, or how much do you, how well do you need to understand a situation before you you're able to mediate and and, and effectively engage the uh, the relevant stakeholders? I think most would agree that you need to be as as alert and aware as 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 possible. Given given the, the the time and, and resources at your disposal, 
and 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 that's really just about listening, listening to to uh, information from all possible sources. Um, certainly, the stakeholders engaged in the mediation, other third third parties and other actors, um, news media, just to be aware of of what's happening, and 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 never to underestimate the uh, the importance and the power of local knowledge, local information. I think that's uh, that's critical in being able to operate in any sort of environment, um, certainly a, a politically charged uh, environment, uh, as you'll find in a, in, in a mediation scenario. So it's really just listening to people, um, keeping an open mind, and I think that's it. There's a, in sociology, there's a, what they call an emic and etic perspective. Are you familiar with that? No. So an emic, an emic perspective is a perspective from, from within the social group, and an ethic perspective is from without. If, if I was looking at um, a conflict between Canada and America, if I can explain, and, and uh, would your perspective be better at understanding what's happening? Um, and you are, as an, yours would be an ethic perspective because as a Canadian, you understand Canada. And right. you, a neighbour to America, you understand America. And so, you know, your, your perspective, um, how valid is it as opposed to mine, so actually, yours, you're, you specialize, but you're going to, you're, the trade-off is um, objectivity. Yeah? Whereas I would have an ethic perspective coming as an outsider. Right. I, don't, I, can't, I don't have the, the in-depth understanding or knowledge of, of either Canada or America, um, but I can have some greater, there'll be greater objectivity. And ideally, at the end of the day, you need both. You need an emic and an ethic perspective on it. But uh, as this is a this is a, a debate that's been going on for many years, not just in in um, mediation and uh, peace building, but um, in 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 sociology and, and the humanities across the board. You've got to really focus on your tools as a mediator. That the, the main thing there you have to arm yourself is, is basically your your tools as a, your mediation tool. Mm-hmm. So should, should you be never, assessing? the amount of emic versus etic uh, knowledge in trying to, if it seems out of balance, trying to um, consult uh, one of the other sources or br- bring them into the, the mix, uh, purposely bring them into the mix to create a informational balance there? Mm, it'd be very difficult to do. Ideally, yes. Um, as the, the, a mediator will usually be coming from the outside and will automatically have an etic perspective. Depends on on who you who you engage um, in support of, of the mediation. Um, ideally, you'd have people on staff that represent or not represent, but come or can can uh, relate to the different the different stakeholder groups, and will be able to help you understand exactly what their points are. Um, and that's where you'd get your your a more emic perspective from. Could you shift into some general communication tips? Um, a- anything at all here uh, that you can share with us? Um, maintain your integrity. You, know, you need to establish, really establish your goals and your principles, your operating procedures and principles as you become involved and, uh, and you don't veer from them you know, without good reason. Of course, there are always flexibilities required and where, where you're flexible and where you're not, that's, of course, a, another question. But it's, uh, it's imperative to always be as open and as honest as possible and you'll be respected for it. Hmm. 
Yeah, so that's not just applicable in, in peace talks, but discussions in the boardroom to to the family dinner table, right? That's um, just exactly. one-on-one yes. there. Yeah, that's the ideal, generally, yes. Yeah. You've um, spent uh, quite a amount of time living in Africa. Um, how, how many years has it been? Um, around 21 years. 21 I, I, years. I arrived here uh, June, uh, June 2000. Okay. A 10-day assignment that has gone on for, uh, for 21 years. <laughs> what, what, do, do you mind if I ask what that 10-day assignment was? Uh, I was uh, working with the Carter Center and uh, working on the implementation of the Nairobi Peace Agreement, the 1999 Nairobi Peace Agreement between Sudan and uh, Uganda. Uh, so a 10-day assignment uh, turned into 21 years. Can you share any general advice that you've picked up for peace builders and uh, foreign aid workers that would help them sort of adjust and uh, integrate into that environment? Is, is there any sort of tips you can give on that? Basically, just to be yourself and uh, to, to ground yourself well and uh, remain true to your principles. Uh, be aware, contextualize. Uh, everything, uh, your surroundings, and stick within your mandate. Minimize your expectations, and always remain optimistic. That that's a great list. I uh, jotted them down here to recap: uh, be yourself, uh, stay true to your principles, uh, beware or uh, contextualize your surroundings, stay within your mandate minimize expectations and stay optimistic. Now, uh, obviously these tips are pulling upon years of experience in the field and are great advice. It's certainly uh, challenging work yet um, rewarding. What keeps you going? One of the things I, I still find uh, highly inspirational working in challenging working in challenging environments from natural disasters such as bushfires um, to conflict or post-conflict environments is uh, seeing people in the most desperate situations still being able to find it within themselves to laugh or smile. Hmm. I think we'll leave it with that. Thanks for your time, Chris. It's been great. Thank you very much, Warren. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear more from international experts digging into a range of topics on conflict, power, and persuasion, subscribe to your favorite podcast app or visit us at cn.org. That's C-I-I-A-N dot O-R-G.